Hello and welcome to another episode of Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I'm Chris Byrne, the Yorkshire Post political editor, and I'm joined today by Caitlin Doherty, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent. Um, Caitlin has been up in Leeds this week to speak to Ryan Stevenson, um, who's a Tory councillor on Leeds City Council, but he's also a board member at the Gorse Academies Trust, um, and he was the Conservative candidate in the Batley and Spen by-election last year um, and narrowly lost out to Kim Leadbeater in that contest. Um, so before we hear that that fascinating chat, we wanted to speak about um, the big news, the big political news of the week, which is um, yet another Partygate scandal um, in Downing Street, this time in relation to events that took place on May the 20th 2020 um, and it's emerged over the last few days that um, basically over 100 people were invited to this bring your own booze event in um, Downing Street Garden that day at a time when we could only meet one other person outdoors. The Prime Minister um, admitted in Prime Minister's questions yesterday that he was among those in attendance although he claimed um, he was there for 25 minutes and believed it was a work event I think it's I think that was roughly what I said was it Caitlin yeah so um oh god um before Christmas we were talking about parties and party gay and I think a lot of people in Westminster politics and those who commentate on it like ourselves maybe anticipated that over the Christmas holiday things would take a little bit of a breather a little bit of the tension would come out of the situation and the government would return to Westminster in the new year rejuvenated, ready to get on with things, you know, booster programs going well. There were probably lots of other things that they wanted to talk about. But here we are, second, first Monday back, apologies, in the first Monday back in Westminster, the Westminster term started last Wednesday. And just in time for the six o'clock news, there was this bombshell leak to ITV, which showed an email from the Prime Minister's principal private secretary, a very senior member of staff named Martin Reynolds, inviting people to the gathering in the Downing Street Garden in May 2020 and telling them to, quote, bring your own booze with an exclamation mark. Uh, Clearly, this has not gone down quite uh, very well. And it was 36 hours, essentially, until Boris Johnson then faced the music at Prime Minister's Questions. You are right. There was an apology of sorts, I think it is probably fair to say. The Prime Minister insisted that he thought it was a work event. In hindsight, he should have gone outside and told everybody to get back inside, get back to their desks. Number 10, of course, at the time, staff working in number 10 were key workers. There were still people in every day as there were in various Whitehall departments as, you know, these were the civil servants implementing the policies of what was quite emergency governance at the time. Um, But I think a lot of people are not impressed by what the Prime Minister had to say. We're now 24 hours on and we have had multiple calls from the Prime Minister to resign, unsurprisingly from Labour and the other opposition parties like the SNP and the Liberal Democrats, but there have also been a few rumblings from within his own ranks. So I think now on Thursday morning, this is probably the most um, jeopardised the Prime Minister has looked throughout his entire premiership. 
So, so can I ask, what was it like um, actually in Prime Minister's questions yesterday? What was the mood like? Because watching it from afar, obviously Labour were, were taking every opportunity to, to jump down Mr Johnson's throat, very understandably. What was it like? I'm particularly interested in kind of what was the reaction of the Conservative MPs to what Mr Johnson was saying? Hmm. So in the room, the first thing to note was it was full. Um, I mean, Prime Minister's questions is quite often the headline moment of the week in the House of Commons anyway. It's the one that gets played out live on the news. It's the one that gets clipped up and shared on Twitter. But you could not move for people, both in the House of Commons chamber that you see on television and then in the press gallery, which Mm -hmm. is um, a layer up. You can't quite see it on the television screens, but there were reporters filled in all the bench spaces and then people sat on the stairs. Um, MP staff were filling the public gallery. It was certainly a moment that a lot of people wanted to be there for. There was some muted response when the Prime Minister uh, walked into the chamber before the first question, usually in a Prime Minister's question session when both the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition walk in, there'll be quite a loud cheer from their own benches. There was some noise, but not as much as usual. Um, And when the Prime Minister was making his apology, despite there being hundreds of people in what is actually quite a small old room, you could have heard a pin drop. Um, on both sides. There was some heckling from the opposition benches to start with um, before he got to the meat of his statement and that was very, very quickly shushed. Um, I think it's fair to say probably from people on both sides. Um, And when it then got into sort of the question and response section with uh, Keir Starmer, Obviously, Sir Keir Starmer didn't have a view of the Prime Minister's statement before he made it, so he was... um, reacting to it we were probably quite unsurprised that he called for the prime minister to resign but normally as the leader of the opposition is speaking you will have really loud cheers and jeering from the prime minister's own backbenches and that sort of starts as cheers when the prime minister sits down and continues Mm. until Keir Starmer stands up there was absolutely none of that it was row upon row upon row of MPs sat with their arms folded silently masks on at one point it could be seen that um, a num- at least one MP had their head in their hands for yeah, about really. a minute. Um, so, yeah, I think muted is probably is probably the response that would go best, and that's probably reflected in the fact that not very many MPs have come out since and made their opinions very well known. I know that there have been a number on uh, the news programmes and that's to be expected, but there are over 300 Conservative MPs and you could probably count the number that have come out and said something either way, not including cabinet ministers, on two hands. Mm. Um, So I think it is quite noticeable that a lot of people are choosing to not say anything or say that they will are waiting until the report into these events from Sue Gray emerges before they make their judgment. So that was a big theme that came across, I thought, quite strikingly in what Boris Johnson was saying yesterday, was he was going back to the well of which Tory MPs had been doing and ministers had been doing the day before when we weren't sure what the Prime Minister was going to say. 
he was going back to this well of wait and see what Sue Gray says, particularly when he was pressed on the idea of whether or not he was going to resign. Um, and so is it fair to say that I know there was a few, P, few Tory MPs, um, perhaps most notably the leader of the Scottish Tories, Douglas Ross, calling for Mr Johnson to resign yesterday. Um, but is it fair to say that there seems to be a lot of people almost on the fence waiting to see precisely what we get from this report? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this report from Sue Gray, I think, will probably help a lot of people make up their minds either way as to whether they want the Prime Minister to set, to stay or go. However, that is quite a... It's, it's quite something for the MPs to be holding off on because nobody has any idea what, what this report is going to say. The suggestions are that it won't apportion blame. There are suggestions that it will look at wider cultures in Downing Street. There are suggestions, will it or won't it name individuals? We have no idea what is going to be in this document, which is expected to arrive at probably in some point in the next 10 days or so. Um, so it's surely, it's quite a significant thread for the Prime Minister's Premiership to be hanging on at the moment. Um, and I guess my final question is... <laughs> probably not the easiest question to answer is where how do you see it going from here how do you see it playing out there are probably two significant flashpoints coming up for the prime minister and the cabinet in the next few months that we know of right now mm-hmm. there is the sue gray report which as i've said is going to land in january as everybody expects And then looking further ahead, there are the local elections in May. A serving government, especially one that has been serving for so long, tends not to do very well in a midterm local election cycle. It's many would probably be expecting the serving government to get a little bit of a battering at a local election cycle such as this. And I suppose there is the suggestion that if Boris Johnson survives what's happened this week and what is yet to come could it be that people are considering his position again come uh, four months time that's always a possibility but of course the other unknown at the moment and I would argue what could be the biggest unknown is that we've had nearly a constant drip 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 of these party stories now for around six weeks it was around the end of November start of December that we first started hearing about these stories and is there more to come out who knows and whether if there is more damaging information that could appear it could put this situation which is already quite tense and very much staring into the unknown on an even wobblier standing than it already is now yeah, I think that's a really insightful point. I think it's just reminding me, actually, I think I saw something this morning that sources close to Douglas Ross had suggested that when he had this conversation with the Prime Minister, one of the issues that got raised was, is there more to come out? And he w- was told, allegedly, that I can't guarantee there isn't. So, as you say, more may yet be to come <laughs> so um look thanks i think that's absolutely fascinating and um we shall see uh, what unfolds in the in the coming weeks how how has that been taking on a new school middle of the pandemic um it was interesting uh, it's a school this one that um 
is at the heart of a community that really needs um, a really good local school um, as, as the hub for the community. And it hasn't had that in recent years. Um, so we've got a big job ahead to turn around, not just educational attainment, but standards and behaviour as well, uh, and put John Smeaton back at the heart of a, what is a growing community, there's more housing coming. Um, and we've had we've made a good start since September. Um, and it's really turned around here. You can feel it as you walk around the corridors and, and go in the classrooms. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's positive. But taking over a yeah, new academy in the middle of the pandemic is not the easiest time, um, just from a, a staff point of view as well. I mean, yeah. you know, isolation rules at the minute are causing us a, a headache along the way. So I don't think we're any, we're near out of the woods yet, but we're certainly on the on the right track. How, how has that been the last couple of weeks um particularly i think uh, certainly for the vast majority of people that i speak to when you talk about the pandemic that their main concern at the moment isn't necessarily catching covid it's what covid is doing in schools and the stress that that is putting on them and their families and what how they need to operate day to day um i think right across the city as across the country in schools we're, we're seeing real difficulties in, in maintaining um the ability to deliver education as we need to, uh, and the requirement to self-isolate um, is causing much of the issue in terms of staff and pupil absences. Um, and I think it's fair to say the government are now looking at that um, and are awaiting some findings on whether we should reduce that time scale. I think that's appropriate given where we are, because if we carry on like this, I think we'll end up in a situation across the country where we then need to start looking at exams again in the summer and whether that's achievable uh, given the disruption that, that self-isolation and absences is causing for mm-hmm. the education of pupils, particularly the most disadvantaged who uh, fell behind during the lockdown um, and are catching up, but we really need those children pupils to be in school so our professionals can deliver the education that we need to get them towards their exams so I think it's moving very quickly towards a critical point now where the government need to make a decision on, on what's the what the isolation rules need to be uh, in order to maintain the delivery of education mm. particularly in secondary schools but in primaries as well across the, the England and the UK. With where we are now in this school and with any other schools in the Academy Trust that you may know about, do you think the pupils are in a position to be able to take the exams and the teachers are in a position to be able to deliver the material necessary to do them with, I mean, what with second week in January with what, four months to go? I think from where we are now, we came back from Christmas and um, when I talked to officers of the city council and and teaching senior leaders in schools right across the city everybody recognizes that there is a job to do in terms of catching up Mm. um and we had clear guidance from the government towards the end of last year that exams will take place in the summer uh although slightly differently and we had something to work to and that was probably achievable if we have um a full rush of education running throughout this term and leading up to the summer um, it is not an understatement to say that that will reach a critical situation if we carry on having to deal with situations where staff are absent and pupils are absent because of the isolation 
rules. And I think um, as the government and the JCVI look at those rules, from a personal point of view, from what I see across the city, as a city councillor, I would say we need really now to be looking at permanent solutions, i.e. vaccinations, rather than temporary mitigations around masks and ventilations, which are are necessary for where we are now. Mm -hmm. But if we need to move forward, get back to what what will be described as the new normal uh, in education, we need some certainty around staff and pupils being in school so we can deliver the curriculum uh, for kids across the city to get them to their exams at the end of the the, uh, summer period. Mm. Temporary mitigations, as you call them, have been around for well, since school probably came back for the first time in 2020 in a variety of ways. Have you had any backlash or any issues or do you feel like they're impacting the education in any way, you know, having windows open, having masks on more permanently? Is it causing any differences to the school or the school experience? The feedback I've had from from teaching staff is that pupils are quite resilient. That you know they'll soon fall into a, a new normal and get on with, with the task before them. I do know that teachers across uh, the city have raised concerns about, for example, mask wearing. Uh, in terms of they wanted to be wearing masks uh, in the classroom, and have well ventilated classrooms for their own safety, which is understandable. Um, and I think it was welcome that 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 for, for certainly the teaching unions felt it was welcome. Um, that, that the rules changed as we came back to school in, in January. But moving forward, we do need to get back to an environment um, where we don't have to wear masks in classrooms uh, anymore because it undoubtedly will disrupt uh, teaching in a way. And the target has to be getting back to normality. Uh, and that's why I think temporary mitigation should be temporary. Uh, we need to get to a situation uh, fairly quickly where we have permanent new ways of teaching in mm. schools uh, because it's not just an issue here in this uh, academy, uh, it's right across the city as well, speaking to teachers and, and head teachers, and they need the stability to know that classrooms can get back to you know, good behaviour practices, solid learning, in, in an interesting curriculum uh, that's not disrupted by masks, ventilation, all the other things going on, and, and self-isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to ask a little bit more um, about you as well. Um, obviously, your role on the council, your role with the uh, Academy's Trust. It's clear that you're very interested in education and consider it as very important. How how did you get into this? Do you come from a teaching background or how, how have you landed in, in the education sphere? Um, I was always very interested in, in the process of education uh, and I observed quite a lot, probably at, a bit unnaturally for somebody when I was at secondary school, um, of how the process of education was working around me. And um, I thought for a while about maybe going into into teaching, but my career took me uh, elsewhere. But the driving force into it, really, I I went to a a secondary academy in a a former mining community, uh, not too far away from here in Leeds. Um, and, And I saw that kids like me uh, didn't have the same opportunities as other children were across the the country or even within the in the school and that was really about the the delivery of education and it was about opportunity and instilling aspiration behavior and standards into 
uh, into pupils. So that always stayed with me. And I, I went off and I worked I worked abroad a bit in public policy formation in Latin America and, and East Asia. And, and whilst I was there, I was looking at the way that education is delivered in different countries. Um, so when I, the opportunity became available uh, to join the Shadow Cabinet on the Council with the education portfolio, <laughs> Uh, opens up new opportunities in looking at how we deliver education across the city here in Leeds uh, and then here again in, in the Academy Trust to really get involved in the governance structure of how we run schools uh, and how we improve opportunities and life chances for young children, particularly in disadvantaged communities, to make sure that they have the same opportunities. Levelling up is a phrase recently that, that's coming out of government uh, a lot. And actually, uh, it's always been the case that education, the education system uh, was intended to be about levelling up, that, that everybody comes in the same at the early years. Uh, and if their abilities uh, allow, they should be able to reach the same potential across the board. We're clearly not there yet, and there's still a long way to go. Uh, but I think the the competition that arises in the, the, the way that education is run across the city across the country now with uh, maintained schools and academy schools and free schools um, creates a sense of competition between schools and that itself is raising attainment. We can see it here in Leeds and coming back to the school we're in today, John Smeaton Academy, which needs to improve uh, its attainment in education and will now do so. Now it's here in the Gorse Academies Trust. Um, that's important because we're raising opportunities for children in the local community who might not otherwise have had the opportunities to go into further education, higher education, or access a, a global jobs market uh, that's here in Leeds uh, and across the UK. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the government is taking education seriously enough when it comes to levelling up? We hear a lot about you know transport and jobs and uh, attainment in various other ways, but do you think enough um, they're paying enough attention to schools when it comes to this? I think if you look at the uh, the funding elements and what's coming out, there's a clear commitment um, from government that came out of the last manifesto, the last general election, to commit more money to per-pupil funding. Uh, and also we've just had, I think, announced 50 new school buildings across England with more to come. And that's the kind of commitment that we need from government in terms of the, the capital investment to make sure that our school environments are the best they can be so that children have a, a fantastic surroundings in which to, to learn. But the actual part of teaching and the curriculum, I think, and I've always felt, should be left to the professionals on the front line, um, to those who are in the classroom teaching and the senior leadership team and those in Academy Trust, for example, who have a a strategic role around the rollout of curriculum and policies and it's much better to allow schools themselves to determine what is best for the pupils that, that they are teaching um, to give them the best outcomes and so I think as we look to levelling up the government's role needs to be providing that capital that's needed uh, and the money for uh, to be able to afford to have more teachers in the classrooms uh, and training is key. The Gorse Academies Trust here have a, 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 a the contract to deliver uh, to the teaching hub for the whole of the city region. So anybody who wants to be a teacher in, in, in this region is most likely going to come through the Gorse Academies Trust to be trained up. And that's important because it means that we can maintain 
standards uh, and deliver the aspirations of, of pupils who are joining us in our trust. But I think the levelling up, the aspirations and the opportunities has to come from the schools themselves and the way in which they teach their curriculums. And I think there's only so much the Secretary of State for Education or ministers in, in London um, can and should do uh, to assist that levelling up. It's very much got to become from, in my opinion, from the, the frontline professionals first. And they are ultimately the people that speak to me as a, a politician in Leeds and tell me what's wrong and what needs improving. And I do believe it should be very much that way around frontline teachers telling us politicians what's needed for us to consider uh, rather than us doing a top-down approach uh, from the centre all the time. Mm. And those teachers that are talking to you, what are they telling you is the biggest issue, the biggest hurdle in education in Leeds at the moment or in the region more, more widely? I think um, if you take Leeds for an example, we've got um, a pending problem around school places in, in key areas and access to school places. Leeds is is growing. It's got um, big ambitions for its local economy. Uh, it's got big plans to deliver new housing growth across the city. But schools and access to schools doesn't always come at the same time. So if you think, you know, on our doorstep here at Johnson Meeting Academy, there are 4,000 houses being built. Uh, now, the majority of those children will, will come here to this secondary academy, but they're soon going to run out of primary school places. Uh, and the local authority have decided that a, a primary school, two primary schools are needed, but probably not until about four or five years down the line. Well, actually, we should be building the school first and the government, perhaps through its levelling up programme, should look. They've recently done a pilot on building um loans for developers to build schools mm-hmm. um, and that pilot's just closed and I think that's the kind of thing where developers can have access to to loans to build the schools up front so we can get in straight away and make a difference in those communities and I think that when teachers are speaking to me about their immediate concerns obviously Covid is where we are uh, today but in the medium and long term it's going to be about access to good school places and we need to solve the problem in Leeds where at the south of the city effectively we're getting to a situation where soon there will be not enough school places for children in good good outstanding schools but also here in the northeast of the city where um, children are being bused to schools elsewhere because the standard of education hasn't been good enough in the locality so you've got schools like John Smeaton, which a year ago um, was nowhere near uh, its capacity, about a quarter full, um, yet local children were attending schools five, six, seven miles away. And I think we need to fix that problem in, in the medium term to ensure that we have the availability uh, of places in good and outstanding schools in local communities. Because once you're in school there's a a huge amount available to teachers teaching staff uh, in terms of doing what they do best educating young people improving their life chances and opportunities but the ability to learn in, in a welcoming environment is diminished if you have to get up at half five six in the morning to catch a bus for an hour to get to your school so so here in leeds it might be quite localized but the pressure actually in the medium and long term is to ensure that there's an availability of good and outstanding school places near to the areas where people are living.
Did, did you say this school was a quarter full a year ago? Uh, yeah, so this is a, a PFI building, um, which brings with it its its own financial problems for us. Um, but yeah, I mean, the standard of education here was not good. Um, it was it last Ofsted, which requires improvement. Uh, it needed to change Academy Trust to have a different mm -hmm. system in place, different delivery of education. And we're now seeing that the school is is slowly filling up again, and hopefully we'll get to a point where the school is full again, full again, and it is is a vibrant uh, place to 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 learn in future. But it, you know, there's another point there is that schools have to be financially viable uh, in mm -hmm. their locations, and and the income comes from a pupil, and you know, the money follows the child to be educated, and so. We need to see more local pupils coming into their local schools to make the schools viable. And then the more children you have in, the stronger your finances, the better curriculum effectively you can uh, deliver. And the great thing about the Gorse Academy Trust that I see is what they call enrichment plus plus in that we have uh, high expectations of, of pupils here in, in our schools. We also have high aspirations for them. So pupils of a from the Gorse Academy's Trust of Opportunity to go into uh, rowing and where we're currently um, delivering a, a new uh, aspect in terms of enrichment around rowing. And we hope that we can break the glass ceiling at the moment. In that if you look at the Oxford-Cambridge uh, boat race, it's typically um, occupied by rowers who come from very similar backgrounds. Um, somebody asked me the other day, can I name a single... Uh, Olympic rower uh, that come from a disadvantaged background, and I, and I struggled to name name one. And I would hope that through the programmes that the Course Academy is just running around those enrichment opportunities, that you know when we get to Olympics in a few years' time, we'll be pointing to children from communities like these in Leeds that were at one time written off as disadvantaged, and are now able to access great opportunities that were once the preserve of. Uh, private schools, independent mm -hmm. schools, and uh, an Oxbridge. You want a John's meeting people in the Oxford Cambridge uh, twenty thirty two or uh, whatever it may be. That would be my my a dream, yeah. And, and any pupil from across the uh, the Gorse Academy is just to be able to to, to take part because mm -hmm. I think that's the schools are places where we come to learn um, and and hopefully get a, a good enough education to allow us to go on into the world and get a decent job and. Uh, start a family, look after our families, etc. But there are also places where you should be able to have new opportunities and try new things. Um, you know, not every pupil at this school has access to learning an instrument. They do now. We've brought that curriculum in as the Gorse Academy's um, trust. And I think that's important that those enrichment activities, mm -hmm. um, in doing that, you might actually pick out a few future stars in all sorts of walks of life um but it's really important that that opportunity matches the aspirations of of local people and i think that's where it's really important that if we are going to level up properly across the uk then actually education is a really good delivery mechanism of that mm -hmm. and i suppose my only observation on a political front is that clearly governments run election to election if you're wanting to prove you've leveled up then you will want the low-hanging fruit as a way to to prove to somebody that you have leveled up you know massive infrastructure projects free ports all those kind of things which are great 
education will take time. If we're investing in a year seven pupil now, it's going to be seven, eight years before we see them entering the jobs market and, and utilising the schools, the skills, sorry, that we've we've uh, provided them with. And that's a long-term investment. And, and the government, I think, needs to keep an eye on that as we level up as well and not forget that sometimes longer-term investments deliver the best rewards. Mm-hmm. I hope you don't mind me uh, pushing a little bit further on that political point there. Um, it's uh, six months now, obviously, since um, the election in Valley and Sven, for which you were the Conservative candidate. Um, since the middle of last year, there have been uh, a, a number of by-elections that the serving government have have not won. Do you think issues like, do you think that the government are talking to constituencies like Batley and Sven and various places around Leeds and Yorkshire enough on issues like levelling up? Or do you think that they might see themselves losing a few more by-elections if things carry on as they are? I think if you look at the... I started out by saying to people, Batley and Spen followed on from the Hartlepool by-election. And I kept saying to people, journalists and others at the time, that Batley and Spen is no Hartlepool. It was a very different demographic. The constituency had very different needs and aspirations. Um, And in some respect, to take a seat that was Labour for a quarter of a century and miss out by uh, 323 votes, which is a figure that will be uh, tattooed on my eyelids forevermore, um, was quite disheartening. Uh, but it, it it also signified, I think, a loss of faith at that time in Labour as a party of government, that, that people didn't see that Keir Starmer and the Labour Party were a viable uh, option to turn to... Um, having had Labour MPs for so long and not seen any improvement locally. And that's the difference between the North and the South. If you look at the by-elections that the Conservative Party recently has uh, lost to the Liberal Democrats, um, the issues on the ground there were very different. I went and campaigned in all those by-elections and the issues that people were talking to me on the doors about in um in those constituencies, were very different to the issues that they were discussing in the north of England with me. And there is a dichotomy, I suppose, in that when we talk about levelling up, the assumption is that if you're going to level up, you have to take away from one area to give to another. And and that's a misconception. I think levelling up needs to be about recognising that in the past, the northern heartlands the former industrialised areas, areas such as this, which have a higher proportion here in Leeds of disadvantaged pupils, um, they just want the same investment as has been delivered elsewhere and therefore creating a level playing field from where they've got equal opportunity. And that's where, as as we seek to define properly what levelling up is, and there's a, I understand a white paper coming mm-hmm. out from Michael Gove shortly, that's the first task to ensure that, that, that people properly understand what levelling up means and it's no longer just an idea and it's delivering for their communities. And I think if they do that and do it well, then constituencies in the south of England will also see that it's not about, they're not losing out it's just about levelling up the way the investment works across the United Kingdom, be it in transport and education or house building or 
access to um, to growth for local economies through the towns deals and leveling up fund etc was was that something that's come up on the doorsteps like you said there are concerns in some parts of the country that um leveling up other areas might be to their detriment that they might be losing out yeah i think it's a an honest view from the doorstep um is that in some of those you know, constituencies in, in the south of england that that have turned away from the conservative party and elected uh, liberal democrat mps i mean I, I if you follow history those seats are probably likely to come back to Conservative Party in the next general election, it, it was very much a protest, and some of them were about very localized issues. Um, but it's it's sort of a kick up the backside, I think, for the the government to recognise that that people want to see action in their local areas, and they buy into the fact that we need to, we do need to invest and level up. But when we're talking about raising taxes to pay for that. People like the idea of big government spending until they have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be some very difficult conversations coming down the line about who who is paying for the commitments we've given, uh, but also the paying off all the spending from COVID-19, which has been, you know, I think the largest spending in, in peacetime in terms of uh, maintaining, keeping the economy open and protecting livelihoods and families throughout. And, and I think as those difficult decisions bite, we do need to ensure that we've got that message right so that people, wherever they live in, in the United Kingdom and within the union, recognise that they have an equal stake in, in, in the union uh, and in the United Kingdom in the opportunities it, it can offer people who want to go out and make something for themselves based mm. on their own abilities and their own, their own work um, and attitude towards work. Mm. Perhaps um, a quite a big question then as a final one, wearing whichever of your hats you may choose, um, you know, as somebody who worked in schools, as somebody who works on a city council or as somebody that is a former parliamentary candidate for the Conservative Party, if you could speak directly to the Cabinet right now, what is the one message that you would give them and the one thing you want them to do? I think um, if... I'll answer that I think as as a as a voter myself, and I th- I think what I would say is it touches all the different aspects of my uh, working life as well as it does for anybody else. Is that we we're not yet out of this pandemic, um, and we need to make sure um, that we when they say build back better that right now building back is is the key. We need to get back on a level playing field. Um, and deal with, like I say, school absence attendance, make sure that education is delivered. It's the same in the NHS, you know, nurses having to isolate and not being able to do um, non-critical surgery, etc. And we need to get a grasp on that. And the key to that is going to be focus, um, having the right people at the table who can deliver that, and by that I mean through the civil service, um, and communication. And it is, I think, quite clear at present that, all those things uh, are not as good as they could be. And that's where the government, I think, it's, it's a new year, there are new opportunities, and um, the government needs to get a, a, a grip now on actually delivering on the manifesto that it was elected to deliver, recognising the huge pressure that COVID has put on. But people will want to look back at the next general election and consider not just how the government protected their livelihoods throughout COVID, invested in the NHS, 
vaccine program, world beating, all those things are great. They're also going to want to see what is the what's the pitch for the future and what is the the found what are the foundations that you've put in place over the last parliament. And there's still time to do that. Um, but the key to doing that is going to be in in delivery and in communication. And I think if we can get that sorted, then there's there are opportunities ahead for um, for the cabinet. And you know there are some fantastic minds around the table. Uh, in cabinet who can deliver that i mentioned michael gove earlier in terms of his ability to work through and with the civil service to deliver things like leveling up uh, across the board you know the foreign secretary is dealing with the international trade agreements and there's great opportunity there i think we just need to get the, the communication uh, better uh, to make sure that we can actually deliver on the promises that were made to the british public at the last general election Brian Stevenson, thank you very much for speaking to me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Podzone Country. If you have any topics you think we should be covering or any stories you think that we should be digging into, please get in touch with me over email on caitlin.doherty at jpress.co.uk. I'll speak to you next week.